Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the second series of Golden Grenades, a weekly podcast about birds with stories from those of us who worship them, all set against that most family-friendly of subject matters, the end of the world. My name is Kit, and this week my special guest is Kabir Kaur. Kabir is a 15-year-old conservationist, wildlife writer and passionate advocate for London's biodiversity. He's an ambassador for the Cameron Bespolka Trust, RSPB Youth Councillor, London National Park City Ranger and Director of Environment and Conservation for Middlesex Heritage. He's created a popular interactive map, Nature Reserves of London, showing every nature reserve and designated wildlife site in the capital. Through blogging, writing, public speaking and social media, he brings focus and awareness to the many green and blue spaces in the capital, which he refers to as the wild side of London, and how Londoners can make a difference for the wildlife on their doorstep. Kabir has been interviewed by several media outlets, including BBC Autumn Watch and The Observer, and last year received the Prime Minister's Points of Light Award for outstanding individual volunteers making a difference in their community. Kabir, welcome to Golden Grenades. Hi, kids. It's wonderful to be here. So you've really risen to prominence over the past year or two and have done some amazing things. And you're still only 15. I can't imagine how many pages your CV will be in a few years time. How do you find the time for all of these different roles that you do and fit in your studies as well? Well, to be very honest, I don't think I've had much time this year or the previous year because of my studies. But before that, in 2019 and 2018, I did have a lot of time on my hands. So I was constantly on Twitter and going to my local patch a lot or whenever I could. But now well, I've, I've really just focused on my studies. And it has been a bit annoying because I haven't been able to go out and do the things I love and uh, be as engaged in my roles as much. But I hope that later this year, that'll change. And hopefully I'll be able to explore and um, raise awareness about London's wildlife. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more, I think, about your passion for London and the wildlife around you. But one thing I was wondering about, Kibia, is, you know, I remember being into birds when I was younger and it wasn't cool at all. You know, none of my friends were interested in it. Everybody had their own thing, whether that was sport or music or gaming, whatever. So my interest in birds was was pretty much a secret hobby that I kept to myself because I couldn't really share it with anybody at school or any of my friends. They just weren't interested. Has that been the case for you as well or not? I can relate to that completely. So when I was seven and I first got into birding, well, I discovered my local patch, this huge national nature reserve right on my doorstep. And that partly helped to fuel my passion for birding. And this was around five or six years ago. So I was still in primary school. And I did share it with my friends and they didn't seem to mind. But when I slowly moved into secondary school, that changed. I thought that I was quite enthusiastic back then, trying to share my passion with everyone else. But then it came to a point where I soon realized I was pretty much (laughs) the only person in the school, or at least in my year group, that was interested in the natural world. Then I did come across some people who were interested in wildlife and birds in particular, But then they sort of hid their interest. They weren't confident enough to to share their passion. And as a result of me sharing my passion a bit too much with others, I did get picked on and bullied at times. And I found it really annoying. And I still look back and it wasn't wasn't very pleasant at all. But then I went on a camp that was sponsored by uh, the British Trust for Ornithology and the Cameron Bespolka Trust, of which I'm now an ambassador. 
I was inspired by the other like-minded young people. These were people who were around the same age as me, and they were really passionate about birds, just like me. And I think before we, we did this podcast kit, we were discussing that it's always nice to be part of a tribe, whether it be sports or television, and in this case, birds and animals. Uh, and it was wonderful to see all these people who had the same interests as me. And that was the first time where I felt that I wasn't really alone. And just seeing people doing amazing things in their local community, whether it be wildlife gardening or building nest boxes, that motivated me to make a change in school. Something didn't seem right in my school, that students weren't aware of the wildlife around them. And going on that camp gave me the courage to go to my teachers and ask them if they could help me set up a, a nature club, a wildlife society, as we called it. And eventually it did get set up, but there were only two people at the first meeting. <laughs> but over time, as people found out about it, that it existed and what we were doing, we were doing PowerPoints and we were going to go outside and into the local area and see what birds we could uh, find in the local area. People got really enthusiastic. The society really brought out young people's curiosity and their, their interests, their passion to learn about things. Uh, and that was the vast majority of people. And as a result, we've got a record attendance once of 35 people. Wow. And I was, I was really excited then. We have had ups and downs over the course of its uh, two-year or three-year existence. But it's now come to a point where, well, just before COVID, we were actually going to go on a trip to North Norfolk. And we were going to go on a birding trip around uh, WWT Welney and the North Norfolk coast. And it was going to be really exciting. Uh, but sadly, COVID came along and we weren't able to do that. But I really hope we'll be able to, to go on a similar trip. So if there are any young people listening, I would encourage them not to be afraid to speak out about their passion for wildlife and uh, not to be afraid to, to share it with others because there might just be someone you know who's also interested but it just takes a little bit of time and uh, confidence and courage to go out there and say, let's come together and save the wildlife on our doorstep. That's brilliant, you know, to think just from two attendees at your first meeting up to 35 and then a field trip that you had planned. I mean, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that enthusiasm is infectious and yeah. people are interested in wildlife. Maybe they just don't, don't realise it, but... You know, you just have to look at the, the popularity of Spring Watch and the David Attenborough shows. Anybody can sit and watch those, but they might not necessarily think of themselves as somebody who cares about urban foxes or hedgehogs or birds in their garden. You know, but I think it just takes one person to say, hey, who wants to chat about this or who wants to think about this a bit more? And I think that's uh, that's fantastic. I mentioned there in the introduction, Kabir, that last year you received the Prime Minister's Point of Light Award for making such a difference in your community. That's amazing. And you must be so proud. You know, one of the things that really caught my eye that you've done is your interactive map of nature reserves in London. Tell us about that and, and how you did it. Well, five years ago, I started watching wildlife in the capital. And I thought, is there an interactive map or a map of some kind that I could use so I can get around uh, the different nature reserves and wildlife sites in the capital? Uh, there didn't seem to be one. And I thought many people could be stuck in the exact same situation. They might only know the immediate area around their doorstep, but not much else. So I, I decided to create this interactive map over time. And it was partly because of that camp I went on that gave me the motivation to continue it because I, I dropped it. I 
kind of deemed it useless and uh, left it alone. I went to that camp and it gave me the motivation to continue. And over the next 18 months, I tried to improve it. And eventually the finished product came out about two years ago. And since then, I have been really surprised with how popular it's become and how people have told me it's, it's amazing. I've discovered something on my doorstep. And that, that really makes me feel happy because well, the, the main reason for that is I see that people are, are using the map as a tool for exploration. They want to discover the wildlife and the local designated wildlife sites on their doorstep. And what I was even more surprised by was that the prime minister had seen it. And uh, one day I was at school and I was reading my emails and I got this email saying, uh, you're a point of light. And that was really exciting. I wasn't expecting that at all. And I was thinking, wow, the prime minister has seen the map. I wonder what he thinks of the map. That's brilliant. And he told me, or he wrote a, he wrote a letter to me saying, uh, it unlocks a treasure trove of biodiversity. And I think uh, hopefully when people use the map, that's what they'll see, a, a whole new landscape to discover across London, a completely new perspective that they can go out and explore and discover. Definitely. I mean, it's so impressive. You know, it's interactive. You can expand it. You can click on stuff. There's links there and it's everything you need. And at this moment in time, when people are locked down and they're having to discover things within just a couple of miles of their home, you know, it's fantastic. And people are, as we've talked about quite a lot on this podcast, people are discovering their garden birds and getting a bit more of an interest in the outdoors and in wildlife. So this map will be invaluable for a lot of people. And I love the idea that Boris Johnson might be using it and then popping out and seeing a nuthatch or something. I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> but have you got any plans to develop it further? Yes, I hope one day that the map can become an app and that can give Londoners and people who are visiting the capital as well, more opportunities to explore that completely different side to the capital. And that will help them enjoy, notice and appreciate the wildlife around them and maybe even inspire them to go the extra mile and protect the, the natural world that's on their doorstep. Because in the end, it's really up to each of us individually to make a contribution to the natural world in our local area, whether it be putting up nest boxes, planting wildflowers, or even volunteering at a local green space. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, if, it, if it's on your phone in your pocket, it's going to be even more useful. So we've touched upon lockdown there a couple of times and how people are discovering their patch or the, the wild spaces around them, even in London. And I had a, a bit of an interesting conversation on Twitter the other day about what's the most unusual list and birders love a list as you know and so we had a little to and forth on on twitter about what was the most unusual list that people keep you know some of us have have ridiculous lists and the, a few examples were well people in lockdown have started listing from webcams which isn't something i've particularly got into but i quite enjoy watching webcams um, but people are using those for listing now people admitted that they've got lists of birds that they've seen whilst they've been out peeing in the field, birds they've seen while watching <laughs> sport on the telly, birds, a list of birds in films that shouldn't be in that film at all based on geography, birds seen while they should have been working, birds seen on Google Maps, birds heard when reporters do outside broadcasts, <laughs> and a couple of my favourites, birds seen from a ladder, and birds that have walked over my boots, which was somebody Twitter called Gavin Haig. And that included a long-tailed skewer, which I thought was particularly impressive. Have you got any weird bird lists? Not really. But only recently have I 
started actually listing. I don't do year lists. I'm not really looking for the competition in birding. It's more of finding my own birds and uh, feel that sort of gratification when you find just any bird, really, no matter how rare or common it is. But I do make lists when I've gone on holiday. Uh, and um, during lockdown, I made a list from my bathroom window <laughs> because I couldn't really go anywhere. It looked down onto the garden in a different way. So it gave me a new angle to look at the garden from. And through that, I saw black caps, chiff chaffs, um, summer migrants and winter migrants as well, but also a willow warbler. And that was quite nice to see. To find a willow warbler in your garden is quite nice. Fantastic. But I think my favourite sighting, the best bird that flew past the bathroom window, was a flock of common scoters. And that was when there was a, a mini influx of them across England. So they flew past north, northwest London, where I live, in, in the borough of Hillingdon. And I opened my windows at 11 o'clock at night because I was on WhatsApp and I saw my friends and other young birders talking about it. And I thought, wait, maybe they're going to pass through Hillingdon. So I opened all the bathroom windows, all the bathroom windows. <laughs> and I managed to hear a faint honking in the distance. And I thought, yes, it's the common scoters. They're flying past Hillingdon. And that was, that was brilliant. And I actually took to um, writing in a notebook, which I hadn't really done very much before the lockdown. It's a habit I'm trying to continue to write in my notebook, uh, wherever I go, or particularly from, from when I'm birding from my bathroom window or in my garden, because you never know what you can find in your garden when you, when you look. Like our mutual friend David Lindo says, isn't it? Anything can turn up anywhere at any time. I'm quite envious. I haven't got common scoter on my garden list, but maybe they have passed over one night when I've not been aware. But you never know. That's yeah, absolutely. That's pretty cool. But right, let's get down to business. As you know, this show is based on the imaginary scenario, which may not seem so imaginary in a few years' time, of an environmental apocalypse. And the very derivative setup is that you have to choose five birds to take on the ark with you, five birds, your favourites, that you will protect above all others to survive in this desolate, apocalyptic landscape that I've created in my evil mind. Tell us about bird number one. Bird number one. one, one. Bird number one is the kingfisher. It's my absolute favourite bird. I first came across the Kingfisher when I was looking through my first ever field guide, which was called the Birds of Britain and Europe. I still have it with me. I have this huge collection of bird, uh, bird books. I never really get around to reading them, to be honest. They're just sort of sitting there. The Birds of Britain and Europe was the first book that's part of that big collection. So I looked at the back cover of this book. And there it was, a Kingfisher. It was really beautiful to look at. At this point in time, I was 10 years old. And I was intrigued at how colourful this bird was. And this was unlike any bird I've ever seen before. There were stunning gold and blue colours. It was almost unlike anything else. And one day I went to a, a local nature reserve that's on the border between the borough of Hillingdon and Rickmansworth in Hertfordshire. It's called Stockers Lake. It's a flooded gravel pit. And it's home to hundreds of migratory wildfowl in the winter. So that's where people come uh, from around the, the local area, Hertfordshire, and what's called the Colne Valley, which stretches from southwestern Hertfordshire all the way down to Heathrow Airport and around there. It's a, a colossal valley, and it's, uh, it's almost like a, an ecological backbone of West London. It really supports a lot of biodiversity. So in Stockers Lake, 
I was in a hide and I was looking out onto this, this vast flock of wildfowl, of um, potchers and teals and um, mallards and shovelers. And then all of a sudden, this bird flew past. It was the kingfisher. It was flying really confidently as if it was trying to get somewhere, as if it had a plan in mind. And I thought, this is the kingfisher. It's the bird from the field guide. It's, it's the kingfisher. And I was amazed. And it seemed just like a very confident bird. Then I went to the next hide that same day, and there it was, the kingfisher. But this time it was perched on a, a, a group of uh, branches, and it was looking very carefully at the water below, trying to examine the water for something. I didn't really know what. Then it just dived in a flash, and it got the fish. And it had got this fish, and it was violently beating the head of the fish on the branches to kill it. And I later learned that's its tactic of quickly killing the fish before eating it. And of course, it ate it and then flew away in its confident manner. But looking at that, it really inspired me, the kingfisher. I know it, sounded, it might sound a bit strange for me to say this, but the kingfisher really motivated me in a way because of its confident manner and how it, it had a plan in mind and its resilience, its sheer resilience, at looking down at the water, trying to spot the right fish at the right time and getting the fish and eating it. It probably had learned all of those skills over time. And especially nowadays when I'm studying a lot, I keep thinking to myself, be like the Kingfisher, be resilient and be confident in what I do. I need to get these, these studies over and done with, uh, like the Kingfisher with its plan. I need to be like the Kingfisher. So it's been quite a motivational bird for me. <laughs> and that's partly why it's my favourite bird. Fantastic. Fantastic. I was wondering what you were going to say there when you were saying that it was you were taking inspiration from it, having just said that you'd watched it whack its prey to death on a stick. But uh, thankfully, that wasn't the take home message from uh, your first interaction with the Kingfisher. They're amazing birds, absolutely incredible looking birds. And we talked about this a few weeks ago on the podcast with Amy Jane Beer, because it's, it's her favourite bird as well. And they really are out of all of the British birds, stunning, striking birds that are, like you say, when you're younger and you flick through that book and you see those colours, they feel like there's something that you're never going to see. So I can vividly remember seeing my first Kingfisher as well because it was so exotic and never dreamt I would see one and never dreamt I'd see one relatively close to home. It wasn't far away. The other the other thing I always think of is, is when you flick through those field guides, you know, you're always drawn, aren't you, when you're younger? to those ridiculous looking birds. And it was always so, I always thought it was so cruel that bird books used to have European birds in as well, because they had beaters and rollers and golden orioles and wall, wall creepers, you know, birds that you're never gonna, I'm never gonna see those in Newcastle. Why are they in my bird book, you know? <laughs> but yeah, Kingfisher is one that you can see and it looks as, looks as ridiculous as all of those. So yeah, it's a, it's a cracking choice. Did you see, though, thinking of the, the premise of this podcast and the fact that it's based on the peregrine falcon, did you see the photos doing the rounds on Twitter this week of the, the Belper peregrines and how twice in a week they've brought in kingfishers? No, I haven't, no. Yeah, oh, it, there's a guy called Rob Booth on Twitter who's taken some photographs of a peregrine bringing a kingfisher to its mate. It, oh, dear. <laughs> incredible. And you wouldn't imagine because they're so zippy little things that are often so close to yeah. them. You know, you don't imagine a peregrine taking out a kingfisher, but apparently they do, along with everything else that they get. So bird number one was a kingfisher. What is bird number two? Bird 
Bird number two. Bird number two is the purple sunbird. So my mum was born in the United Arab Emirates, and the majority of my mum's side of the family lives there. So I visit every year. Well, at least I did before COVID. <laughs> but I've started birding there and making lists in the UAE. The specific area that my mum is from is an is an emirate to the east of Dubai called Sharjah, and that's where my grandparents live uh, today. Their garden has had so many birds. And the best record is a red wattled lapwing, and that was quite amazing to see. It flew into the garden, but that was that was very unexpected. <laughs> but I think my favourite bird from the list I've made in my grandparents' garden is the purple sunbird. It's just got really vivid and iridescent purples and greens and blues that go across its its body. It's really beautiful. But I was just birding one day in my grandparents' garden a couple of years ago looking for red-vented bulbuls and yellow-eared bulbuls and uh, Indian silverbills. And then I heard this call that was somewhere between a wren and a willow warbler, and I had no idea what it was. And for about half an hour to 45 minutes, I walked around the garden to try and find where it was. And it moved around a lot, so I didn't really know where it was. But eventually it came to a point where the sound was right in front of me. And there were two males actually fighting with each other. And eventually one sat on top of the tallest tree in the garden and he stuck out his tongue and belted that song that was between a wren and a willow warbler, kind of singing to the whole emirate of Sharjah saying, I've won, this is my garden, stay out of my garden. And it was quite amazing to see that this really little bird is showing this much dominance. And I had bought a field guide the previous year, which was called the Birds of the United Arab Emirates. And I, I recognized the bird from my field guide. And I thought, that's the purple sunbird. It's the only sunbird in the United Arab Emirates. And to see that my grandparents' back garden was very memorable. Later, two years or so after seeing that male purple sunbird, I was in my great-grandma's house and I looked up on the roof and there was this small grey and yellow bird. It really stuck out against the, the, the desert landscape. It had a, a grey body, but it had a striking yellow chest but what really st uh, stood out for me was it just like the male purple sunbird it had a down curved beak and then i realized it's the female it was a female purple sunbird and in some species the females tend to be quite dull compared to the males you can especially see that with ducks with uh, mallards and potchards and teals but yeah they're amazing birds i've never seen a sunbird of of any description but purple sunbirds are fantastic looking birds they're almost like almost hummingbird-esque aren't they? they they feed on nectar i mean they can perch but they can almost fly like a hummingbird and get nectar like you say the male has this metallic bluish purplish coloration to it in the sunlight and they're, they're fantastic looking birds one thing i love about them as well is that the male has pectoral tufts in breeding season these sort of bright yellow tufts that it spreads out from its pectorals to, to be particularly attractive, don't we all? But the other thing is, although the female might be a little bit less spectacular, I was reading that the male really doesn't do a lot when it comes to parenting. So really? No, I, I, it, it's, it's quite crazy. The female builds this amazing hanging nest, takes a 10 days of cobbling together cobwebs and vegetation, lichens and bark. And then 
after she's built the nest, she goes in, tarts it up inside, lays the egg, incubates it completely on her own, and then does most of the feeding as well. The male does chip in with a little bit of feeding, but from what I can gather, the male's particular role is what you've actually just described, which is to see off all intruders. So the the female, the mother, does all the parenting and the, the dad just goes around getting in fights and singing from the rooftops that he's the best and get off my patch. So yeah, that I guess that's what you witnessed there was the male being dominant and seeing off all intruders. But yeah, great birds. And I read as well that they, they're quite long lived in captivity. There's a record of one living for 22 years for such a small... 22 year. years, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's really small, but... When you come to think of when you come to think of it, it is quite impressive the things it does. How uh, the female builds its nest and the, yeah. the male showing off its dominance compared to its small size. Yeah, yeah, and pectoral tufts. Right then, let's move on from um, pectoral tufts, and we'll talk about bird number three. Bird number three. Three. <laughs> the next bird is the Asian coal. Now, I'm of Indian descent, and my mum speaks with a slight Indian accent. So she says coil, and those two syllables, coil, really reflect the bird's call, because that's, that's what it's named after, it's call, the coal. It goes coil, coil, and then it goes up a pitch, coil. And when you've listened to it for the entire day, it sometimes can be a bit annoying. So I went on holiday once to Thailand two years ago, and I would bird first thing in the morning and last thing in the evening. So I'd come out at about 6.30 in the morning. So for about an hour or two hours, I would sit on the balcony and look out and see all these amazing birds, like storks and Asian openbills and um, herons and egrets and green pigeons flying past and perched in the trees around the apartment I was staying in. And last thing in the evening, I'd go outside and see lots of, lots of the same birds, really, as well as flocks of uh, Chinese pond herons and cattle egrets flying past too. But one thing was consistent throughout. It was the call of the male Asian ko. Koyel, koyel, koyel. And it was so annoying. I was trying to do uh, and uh, my studies in, inside the apartment, and that's all I could hear. It was really annoying. One day, it was New Year's Day, and I was out birding in the city centre of Bangkok and in one of Bangkok's most popular parks called Lumpini Park. And I saw all of these exciting birds like uh, bee-eaters and um, brown shrikes. And then I saw the female Asian coal perched up in one of the trees, and it was flitting about between the trees. Well, I shouldn't really say flitting. They are a member of the cuckoo family, and they're very large. One actually sat on the apartment balcony, and you could really see its sheer size. But it was moving between a few trees. And I thought, okay, let's get a photo of it. But before I could get up my camera, I heard the noise and it really hurt my ears. It was the male Asian coal sitting in the tree above where I was standing. And I'm, I'm going to remember that for a very long time. It really hurt my ears. <laughs> and I think that was the tactic of the male Asian coal trying to signal to the female for some kind of courtship ritual or, or mating ritual. But the female wasn't very interested and just flew off. <laughs> the Asian coal, it is quite a magnificent bird when you look at it. But its noise, when you're trying to do things in your everyday life, can make you a bit frustrated throughout the day. I can imagine. And it's interesting that it's from the cuckoo family because our cuckoo is named after its call as well. 
and the song of the cuckoo has been mentioned on the on the podcast recently and people still think of our cuckoo as bringing the spring and despite having a bit of a controversy around them they're thought of with affection but these birds like you've mentioned a lot of people find them really annoying because that call is relentless and i've even seen youtube videos dedicated to how to get rid of them from your garden which usually <laughs> involves playing the call of them back at them so that they think it's another male and they then turn on their heels and do a runner. I mean, yes, their call is quite annoying, but I think that's a bit cruel playing the, the call because they, they might be uh, trying to find a mate and that could be quite disturbing. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think playing calls is, is usually detrimental to birds when they're just trying to go about their business, definitely. But yeah, stunning, stunning looking birds as well. Like you say, the male's got this glossy bluish black plumage and a bright crimson red eye ring females like a lot of female birds of the species is a a little bit dowdier brown but still beautiful in our own way speckled and and quite stunning and they also have the same habits i understand as well as our cuckoo of laying their eggs in other birds nests they're brood parasites yeah exactly exactly Uh, but they have to go for bigger birds because they're bigger birds themselves so i think they pick on crows and other things don't they to wow bring up their babies So again, another example of fairly bad parenting. So let's move on. Can you tell us about your fourth favourite bird? Bird number four. This bird is the great white pelican. So I'm now going to talk about my birding experiences in Dubai again. I have a Dubai patch as well as a patch here in in the UK. I have one in the UAE as well. It's a place called Russell Core. It's a large mangrove forest and areas of salt marshes. The Dubai Creek flows through it and out into the Persian Gulf. And it's very near to the Burj Khalifa and um, downtown Dubai, so central Dubai. And it's quite a large area and it can accommodate loads of birds. Not, Not just birds, also some crustaceans and insects, mammals too. But people go there for the flamingos. To be honest, I don't know how well known the site is as a tourist attraction in Dubai. But in the middle of the morning, there are these huge tour buses that come packed full of tourists and they swarm into the hides to try and catch a glimpse of the many greater flamingos. And when they're being fed as well, they're fed at 10 a.m. every morning. And that's really popular with the, the tourists and people who come to Dubai. But I don't really go for the greater flamingos. Yes, they're splendid birds, but there's a lot more to Russell Core than just the flamingos. It's on a, a flight corridor for many different wader species like Pacific golden plover and broad-billed sandpiper, uh, long-toed stint, uh, little stint. The, the list goes on. There are so many different birds. But there's one bird that I will remember for a very long time. The reserve was about to close one evening. They close at uh, 6 p.m. every evening. These hides, there are three of them. They are, I will say, the best hides that I have ever been to. They have air conditioning. There are rangers there who offer free drinking water for you. And of course, you can get amazing views of Dubai and the mangrove forests at the same time. There's a real contrast between the two landscapes. When the reserve was about to shut one evening, we were staring out of the mangrove hide. And we saw a couple of flamingos here and there, some uh, little stints, some long-toed stints. And in the middle of all of it, before I could turn my head in the direction my mum was pointing, she shouted, it's a pelican. Now, at this point, my mum was just learning about 
birds than that do in the UAE. There are lots of different uh, herons and egrets, and it's quite easy to get them confused and mistake them for pelicans. There are Western reef herons and little egrets and great egrets too. We call them great white egrets here in the UK. And she pointed to this bird and it was a pelican, a great white pelican. And I later learned it was the 10th recorded bird for the, the, the country. I wasn't the first person who saw it. I saw it in March uh, and the first sighting of it was in February from that hide in Russell Court. And it actually stayed until August. It made Russell Court its home for over half a year. It's quite remarkable to think of. But it was sitting on a pile of logs and looking over the landscape like it was the king of that landscape. And all the birds seemed to just look at it like it shouldn't be here. Why is it here? And it's a colossal bird. It's absolutely huge. It's one of the, the largest flying birds in the world. And its wingspan is huge as well. And every so often it would preen itself with its, with its gigantic bill. And it just looked really majestic amidst the setting sun. But it really looked like some sort of king in the landscape. But I'm going to remember that for a very long time. I bet the 10th recorded bird for the UAE. That's amazing. And to think as well that a bird in an exotic landscape, you know, looked so out of place even there amongst flamingos and other herons and things like that. that that's fantastic. And the fact that it was so rare for that area is brilliant. Obviously, pelicans in this country are instantly dismissed as escapees. So, you know, not, not a chance of getting it accepted on any list over here. There used to actually be a pelican who lived near me. Well, in the 70s, there was a, a pelican up the road in a, in a little village called Walkworth. And it had a resident... Was it, was it a wild yeah. pelican? It effectively behaved like a wild pelican, but I, I think to this day, it's never been accepted as a wild bird. I think, I don't think there's ever been a pelican accepted a, as a wild bird in the UK, as far as I understand. Um, but he, he lived in Walkworth for three years. He's now stuffed in the Hancock Museum, uh, the, well, the Great North Museum, it's now called. I remember seeing Percy the pelican stuffed. Percy the pelican. He was found dead and stuffed and put on display in the museum. Um, but yeah, the locals used to love him, apparently, back in the 70s when he, when he used to entertain the crowds and walk with. Nobody knew where he came from, I believe. But for Sounds all... like quite a popular pelican. Yeah, he was, he was really, I mean, well-loved and uh, had his own name. I don't know how they worked out what his name was, but presumably he told them at one point. <laughs> Being silly. <laughs> right. It's a great story <laughs> about the pelican. It's, it's, yeah, it is. It is great. Let's move on. So we're on to your fifth and final bird here. And I'm a little bit excited about this one because it's a, it's a bird after my own heart. So tell us about bird number five. Bird number five. five, five. It's your favorite bird kit, the yes. peregrine falcon, the fastest bird in the world. <laughs> I must say, I must agree. It's a magnificent bird. It's one of the best birds of prey we have here in the UK. And I live in London. And my favourite place to go and see them is quite unusual. It's the Tate Modern. It's a former power station that's now been turned into a, an art, a po very popular art gallery in central London. And whenever I go there, yes, the artwork is great. Yes, the views of London are stunning. But so are the peregrines, because sometimes you hear a repeated shriek or a repeated call in the air. It's key, 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 key. And you look up and there's a huge female peregrine chasing a flock of pigeons. And very often it'll catch one and eat it. Uh, and it'll enjoy it just looking over St. Paul's Cathedral and it will sit on the side of the Tate Modern chimney 
because it's a former power station. It's got its old chimney as well. And I've seen it eating for hours and hours. It was just enjoying its meal in front of a beautiful view of the capital. I thought, how amazing must that be? But they effectively control populations of pigeons in London or indeed in any urban area. And the reason why they've done so well is firstly because when they look down onto the ground, it's their dinner plate. They've got pigeons everywhere. But also it's the high-rise buildings, the concrete tower blocks and skyscrapers in the middle of city centres, because they kind of imitate the natural cliffside habitat where they were once found in large numbers. Unfortunately, that's not the case nowadays. But I love seeing peregrines just flying in the sky above London. It really shows how well wildlife can adapt to urban areas. Absolutely. I've also seen peregrines eat parakeets, catch them out of the sky. And parakeets are becoming quite widespread around the UK. They're expanding their territory from London and the southeast and branching out to other parts of the UK. So who knows, maybe we'll see in, in the distant future, or maybe even in the next 20, 30 years, peregrines, just like with pigeons, controlling populations of parakeets. That would be quite interesting to see. Yeah, and controlling those populations, because they're not necessarily a well-loved bird by a lot of people. They, a bit like the cold, they make a lot of noise and sometimes push smaller birds out, or that's what people might think. I think a lot of people might see the peregrine as doing a, a, a public service there if that was if that was to happen. But this is great. You know, you're the first person on this podcast to also pick the peregrine falcon. Amazing birds, as we all know, over 200 miles an hour in a stoop, precision, control, symbolise freedom and, like you say, so adaptable moving away from the areas of persecution in the in the moorlands and coming more in towards city centres where they can just perch up on high and take their pick of whatever they fancy and as we mentioned earlier they can take some surprising prey although pigeons and common birds will take up the bulk they can also take all sorts of things woodpeckers woodcock at night they can even take other raptors kestrels and owls you know that they're, they're incredible predators your favorite is the kingfisher because that was one that you picked up on as a as a child and became part of your psyche and then when you finally saw one it was amazing for me that bird was the peregrine you know from from bird books and an old tv show called sky hunter that we were shown at school which was like a, an educational thing but it was about three plucky kids trying to investigate the the sale of peregrines and birds of prey in, oh in london yeah and it was it was great it was oh, like, no we were we were shown this show in school it was brilliant and i couldn't wait for it every week you know, to see what and, and really got obsessed with peregrine falcons at that point. Incredible birds. And I'm so, so chuffed you've picked it as well as me. It's one of your five. Great stuff. So as you know, Kabir, the premise of this podcast is that you choose your five favorite birds and then you must pick one and only one that has to go claw to claw or beak to beak with my peregrine falcon. Now, ultimately, you can't lose this one because Peregrine's one of your favourite birds as well. But which bird are you going to choose to go up against my mighty Peregrine? I'm not going to be choosing the Peregrine. I'm going to be choosing the Kingfisher because that was the bird that really helped to inspire, partly inspire my love of nature. And I find them to be very confident and resilient birds. And they have a lot of determination. They know what they're going to do. They have a plan. 
And unfortunately, especially in our urban areas, they're, they're still adapting to urban waterways. But in those areas, especially, they have suffered due to pollution and sometimes cold winters as well. And yes, I love the peregrine. It's adapted very well to city life. But the kingfisher is almost there. It's almost adapting. Hopefully in the future when kingfishers are doing well and we give kingfishers a chance on our urban lakes and streams and rivers, just like peregrines in the air, which are apex predators of the skies above urban areas. Kingfishers can be apex predators in our urban waterways. And that's, that's something I really want to see in the not so distant future. Fantastic. You make a very, very strong argument. Now, as you may have heard, the peregrine hasn't done particularly well so far on Golden Grenades, and but that's, that's all going to change. I've decided to mix it up a little bit, and each week I'm going to be coming up with a different way to decide on which is the best bird. And because these two birds are our favourites that we hooked upon as our favourites in childhood, I'm going to choose a particularly childish way to decide which is the best bird here. And we're going to do it by playing Top Trumps. Everybody's played Top Trumps. It's a great game. And I've been loaned a deck of RSPB Top Trumps cards, which happen to feature both the Peregrine and the Kingfisher. So these cards were sent to me by my friend off Twitter, Dave, and they're his son Aiden's cards. So thank you very much, Aiden, for letting me borrow your cards for this Golden Grenades battle. So what it is, Kabir, is we've got six categories here. Well, you're going to choose three of them. Best of three, whoever wins the best of three, then is ultimately this week's winner of Golden Grenades. So the categories are wingspan, lifespan, UK population numbers in terms of breeding pairs, maximum numbers of eggs per brood, the age in days that they first fly, and the top trump's cute rating. Um, the top trump's cute rating. Yeah. So you're going to go for that one? Yeah. Oh. Right, okay, well, that's you one up because Kingfisher gets 25 on the cute rating and Peregrine only gets seven, which is an absolute travesty. <laughs> but yeah, okay, one nil to you. Could I go for a number of eggs, please? <sighs> Maximum number of eggs for the Peregrine is four. Kingfisher, seven. <sighs> oh, man. Go on, one more. Let's have one more in... Let's see if I can pull one back to make it 2-1. I'll try and be nice. Um, wingspan. Okay, the wingspan is indeed in the Peregrine's favour. 102 centimetres to 25. But sadly, once again, Peregrine has failed. And the winner of this week's Golden Grenade Best Bird Battle is Kabir's Kingfisher. Yay. Well played, kid. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Kabir, for coming on today. Maybe you've got a couple of moments you could tell us what you're hoping to do for the rest of 2021. I hope, firstly, that I can get back into my roles because I've had to take a step back for quite a long time because of my studies. And also go around the capital, COVID permitting, continue to raise awareness about different green spaces and community groups and where people can go and just generally encourage people to enjoy and appreciate the wild side of London. 
well, hopefully as the year goes on, we'll start to return to some sort of normality and you can get back to all those jobs that you have and enjoying those spaces around you. So all the best to you for the rest of the year. And thanks once more for coming on. It's been a pleasure, Kit. Thank you for having me. Well, that's your lot for this week, folks. Tune in again next week to see if my peregrine can turn its fortunes around with my special guests, the wildlife photographer and cameraman turned agriwilder, Luke Massey, and his co-agriwilder, the wildlife writer and nature marketing consultant, Katie Stacey. Until then, bye for now. <laughs>